HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. So was it the eggplant? Sure. Why not? I just don't know. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3 anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Can anything truly prepare you for opening a restaurant? What type of mentorship will craft you into a strong chef, owner, and leader? And what in your past has led you to the place you are today? I'm your host, Eli Sussman. I'm the chef and co-owner of Samisa Restaurant in Brooklyn. And on The Line, each episode, I speak to one chef or restaurateur about the trajectory of their career and look to answer those questions and more. For my own personal growth and for the sake of my own business, I'm looking to learn from experts in the restaurant world and hear their successes and failures, hopefully increasing my ability to keep my business going strong. If you're listening and you're a lover of food or have your own concept percolating or a young line cook looking to grow and are weighing the best way to move up, the show is packed with great advice from incredible, wise, talented guests. So I hope that after this episode, you'll go back and peruse the archives and find some folks that speak to you and your culinary sensibilities. We've been on the air telling chef and owner stories since 2016 with over 90 episodes of The Line, and it's my great pleasure to kick off the new season today with executive chef and restaurant owner Katie Button, who now calls Asheville, North Carolina her home. Chef Katie Button was born in South Carolina, raised mostly in New Jersey, and educated here and also in Europe. She's the chef and co-owner of two restaurants in Asheville, North Carolina, Curate Tapas Bar and Button & Co. Bagels. Chef Button has worked for Jose Andreas and Fran Andrea at El Bulli before returning to the South to open up her restaurant in 2011 with her husband, Felix. 
The restaurant and Katie have received tons of accolades. She was a finalist for the James Beard Rising Star Chef Award in 2014. She was a nominee for the Best Chef Southeast Award in both 2018 and 2019. And she was named one of Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chefs of 2015. And Kurute was most recently recognized as one of Esquire's 40 most important restaurants of the decade. Katie, welcome to the line. Thank you. I want to start off by discussing a few of the principles of your restaurants. Uh, The restaurants are committed to sustainability, preservation, community, and employment. But uh, let's first talk about employment. In a, in a business with razor-thin margins, you've committed to things that cost money but are sometimes hard to quantify perfectly on the P&L report. So in that category of employment, your, your spots are living wage certified. I first want to know what does that mean? And second, was it a difficult decision to make that commitment because it may or may not cut into profits? Well, um, so how is that, you know, kind of monitored or created? So living wage certified, there's a group in Asheville called Just Economics that basically calculates what, you know, it would cost to be able to afford to live in our area, you know, um, and have your basic needs all covered. And so when we first opened Corte, we actually made the commitment to become living wage certified by the end of our first year. It was just, to me, it was like a no brainer. It's like you have to pay people what they have to make in the area that you are in order to survive and live. Otherwise, is it, can you even call it a job? You know, I, I don't think so. Um, so anyway, that was a really big goal for us. And, um, in that case, you know, profit was never even like a consideration. Cool. And so when you talk to other business owners about this and they say, well, how did you accomplish this and how can I possibly pull this off? Does it have to do with just making the commitment and sort of changing your mindset on what priorities are and what successes are? Are there like hard and fast rules that you think any restaurant owner can apply to their business to make sure that they're engaging in sort of great employee and employment practices. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I very well understand the razor thin margins. I mean, I have two restaurants that are currently running, but I've closed one since we've, you know, I opened Night Bell and then closed it um, this past year. And, you know, because of the fact that it was not a profitable business and um, wasn't viable, I couldn't pay what we needed to do and offer the benefits that we were offering and have that function. So I understand how challenging it is for a business. But I feel like, you know, um, we're, I'm fortunate in the fact that Curate has been incredibly successful. And therefore, if you have that formula that works, I do think you owe it to your staff and your team to develop a, a career in, try, try to shape the restaurant industry to be more of a career for individuals. They need paid time off. They need um, sick days. They need to work reasonable hours in a week and... Um, and they need health insurance and those basic things. I didn't apply them all immediately. It's like every year I made an, a commitment to increase our benefits and offerings to our employees by one major change every year. And to this day, even though we've been open nine years, we continue to do that. Um, and what's been interesting to see is every time I roll something out, what we think it's going to cost us 
it never costs us quite that much, right? Like, like because you, you when you do the calculation, you're like, oh, if everybody takes their paid time off in the year. But in reality, some people are going to leave, you know, and not have accrued a lot of paid time off, and other people are going to join, and then some people just won't take as much. And it's... Um, if you roll them out incrementally as you're able to, you can kind of see that before you offer whatever's next. And a major, another major aspect of your restaurants is sustainability. You've committed to uh, recycling, composting. I'm sure there's many more aspects of the business that flow into that. So you've you've obtained a green restaurant certification. Uh, what does that entail? And was that a difficult? Uh, part of the uh, of the of the business to uh, to engage in because while a lot of people now say oh well of course every business recycles and composts I'm not sure that they necessarily understand that you actually have to pay more at least in New York I, I assume it's same in Nashville you pay for a company to pick up your compost and while it's a wonderful thing to do for the environment it is sort of like it's it's lost revenue in a way it makes you feel good but you're paying someone to essentially take another part of your trash away right um, so talk a little bit about sustainability and and how that uh the green certification and how that impacts your business as well um well i mean first of all i do think it's easier if you kind of start composting versus I, I've heard that it's harder to add it after you've opened than if you just like started out that way. And we did like our first year, we just started with this yeah. composting. Cooks are space. like, what are all these different garbage cans you've put in front of me now? <laughs> <Totally>. Right. <laughs> They're like, I thought I'd just throw everything in the black garbage can. No. <laughs> and it takes some training to make sure that, and it was something that frustrated me so much when I would come over and find like gloves in the, in the compost bin, I would be that person who was like pulling the gloves out who put this glove in here, you know, in the beginning. Totally. <laughs> like, I've calmed down a little bit since but it was because uh, I, I just cared a lot about it and I knew it was going to anger our uh, composter <laughs> like to, to have to sort through. Totally. Um, so, you know, it is, you do have to pay for it. Just like you have, you'd have, we pay to have our fryer oil like recycled and, you know, I mean, you have to pay for all of those services. But if you can, make it work in your business model. And I, I mean, it feels like the world is, you know, going to hell with the environment. <laughs> so I feel like yeah. it's like, it's like I, I now, you know, it's painful for me to not do the things that we're doing. And, um, uh, so when I go into another restaurant that isn't, and, and there's no compost bin, it's like, oh no, it's all in one trash. <laughs> yeah. In an, in an industry where it's so difficult to be successful and last and make a profit, restaurants have to be at the forefront of everything that is both, uh, personal, professionally, environmentally, economically, uh, sustainable. <laughs> and, um, that's and really hard. It's incredibly <laughs> yeah. challenging. Um, but so you've, you've created this kind of environment, uh, at your restaurants that is very thoughtful and we'll continue to talk about that a little bit later on as we focus more on you moving back to Asheville, but I actually want to rewind now to early childhood, South Carolina, and then you grew up in New Jersey, right? Yeah. So 
Do you have memories of the South or did you move away when you were too young? Um, I do because my grandparents, I mean, we moved when I was seven Mm -hmm. and then um, my grandparents um, continued to live in South Carolina in the um, town that I was born in. And so we would come back for holidays and every summer to go to the beach and they lived right near Myrtle Beach and like we would go to a beach just south of that. And um, so I've always felt like if there was any other place in the world besides the Northeast, you know, because I grew up in New Jersey, that I was going to live, it was going to be the South, just because that's where my I felt the most connected. And, um, you know, I have memories of starting school in New Jersey and the teacher and other children making me, like, repeat words because I had this Southern accent. I've since, since lost it, but I had this, like, really thick Southern accent when I first moved up, and they would be like, say that again. And I'd, like, say the word again, and everybody would, like, laugh, and it was um, it was uh, uh, interesting. I felt a little bit on show, but... Um, Quite that you were the, the novelty item in, in New Jersey know, as a young kid. Really, They're like, we've never met anyone from the <laughs> South before. That's uh, really sad. Actually. So did your, did your parents, one of their career careers or something bring you up to New Jersey? My father, yeah. Okay. And so what did your parents do growing up? And um, and did that in any way inspire your career path, which we'll talk about in one, in one second, which is that uh, many people might not know this, but you don't have a traditional culinary background no. at the start of your career. So what did your parents do? And did that in any way impact decisions that you made? Absolutely. So my um, father was a pilot and um, uh, for... Um, private. He like flew private planes, and his um, his job is what moved us up to New Jersey. And he had to find another job and, and found one in in the New Jersey in New York area. My mother actually was in the food business, so she um, worked in a catering company in. Greenville. And then when we moved South Carolina, and then when we moved up to New Jersey, she opened her own catering business that she ran out of our house. So my home growing up was like always full of different people cooking. You know, she'd have um, uh, people who worked with her who would help her complete events. And it was full of like smells and interesting foods and, you know, um, yeah. So, and I would help her cook sometimes. um, And just really, that's what was part of my soul was just great food. Knowing knowing that bit of information, this next question might be a little difficult to to nail down and quantify. But I want to know about like smells from your childhood that you remember, because uh, I actually didn't know that your mom was uh, a caterer. But so I imagine that your home was filled with lots of different smells in New Jersey. But what people think about New Jersey is kind of like classic American food, like. Mm-hmm pork stores and sandwiches and maybe like Italian, heavy Italian food. And what I think of the South is something completely different, Mm -hmm. different flavors, different smells. So is there maybe one or two things from when you'd go visit your grandparents versus when you were up in New Jersey? Yeah. So two of my favorite things visiting, because we would go every summer and uh, to visit my grandparents and go to the beach. And that's like the height of peach season. Mm. And I have these memories of like going and getting peaches, South Carolina peaches, and taking a bite out of them. And they're like so incredible. I mean, they're nothing like any peaches you find in the grocery store. You know, they're like so incredibly sweet. And the juices are like dripping down your arm. And they're like the smell, they're like perfume, you know. And um and, and boiled peanuts, because we would do all that on, like, the roadside stands, you know, like, grab the peaches, and then right next to them, there'd be a big vat of boiled peanuts. And I love 
boiled peanuts. They're like maybe my favorite thing in the whole world. Um, and I think that what people need to do when they try boiled peanuts is get the idea of peanut out of their mind and think more about a bean, you know, mm -hmm. and like, like a soft bean. And then I think the texture doesn't bother them as much, but I love them. They're like soft and squishy and salty and, um, uh, really and nutty all at the same time. And then also, um, South Carolina barbecue, you know, like that was something else that we did every single year was go to the, which is pork barbecue, pulled pork barbecue and, um, a mustard vinegar sauce. Um, I, I can't eat barbecue with anything but mustard vinegar sauce now. And, and what, a, what about when you were a young kid and you had just moved to Jersey? Like, did you miss the Southern food immediately or were you kind of like a pizza and chicken tenders kid and you were like, it doesn't really matter to me? Well, I was, you know, I did miss it, but I was fortunate that my mother, you know, cook, was a wonderful cook and she's like how I caught that bug of cooking. And um, so our, I grew up, you know, eating artichokes and you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. She would do like I baked brie from her events and you know it was it was not a chicken tenders kind of scenario. So leftovers, catering leftovers. Hey, everybody likes eating from a huge metal tin right. at the end of the night. That's exactly. kind of the best. You're just like looking through the fridge and finding all these great party leftovers all the time. Uh, so you move up to New Jersey and then you must have gotten very interested in science at some point because the next part of your kind of trajectory led you to uh, a pretty intense education. You went to Cornell. You had a, got a degree in chemical engineering. You got a master's degree in biomedical engineering, right? Yes. And then you were about to get a PhD or you had been accepted was, into I'd, a PhD yeah, program? I, got, I was accepted and about to start a PhD program. Most people that are about to get accepted into a PhD program don't have a revelation that they should be then peeling garlic right. in the basement <laughs> yeah. of a Jose Andreas restaurant. But um, clearly that appealed to you. So I want to know, um, first, what about the world of STEM and these intense educational pursuits, what did you like about that? And then at a certain point, what made you realize that that after you'd spent a lot of time, you'd invested so much in yourself to do that, what made yeah. you decide that you no longer wanted to pursue that? Well, I am an extreme overachiever and um, always have been. And, you know, I think it was in school, you know, you're just hearing all the time about what success means. And, um, it's, it, it's all about being a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist or an engineer. And, you know, those, those things sound successful. And I was pretty, I was really good at math and science. Like I, you know, um, math even a little bit more than science even, but, um, I just had like a knack for understanding um, and thinking in that way. And I'm like a numbers person. So it just was like, okay, well, I'm pretty good at it. And why don't I do that? <laughs> Even though I had no idea what an engineer really did. And it just sounded like if I got a degree in engineering, I'd be set for life and that would be it. And I wouldn't have to worry. But the truth behind on paper, you know, the like degree from Cornell, the master's degree, it all sounds, the acceptance of the PhD sounds like awesome. But I was, I was like really unhappy. 
you know, and just, I was a mediocre student at Cornell because I didn't enjoy what I was studying. I hated my classes, you know, and I didn't realize that I hated my classes until I got into my second year. Cause the first year you just do like basic math, you know, mm. classes that everybody has to take in science. It wasn't until the second year that I got into engineering classes and I really didn't like them. And, but I felt stuck because I was like, if I switch, I remember ta- thinking about switching undergraduate degrees and being afraid to even consider it because it was going to mean my time at Cornell would be longer. I was going to add, like, it would take me five years to graduate instead of four if I switched. And that just felt not right, you know? But in hindsight, then to like have like wasted that time also doing <laughs> a master's degree, it's like I should have just like, but I, I should have just switched. But anyway, um, I was jealous of they have a great hotel management school, and there were a lot of kids that I would come across, um, and I was jealous of like the classes they were taking, the business side of understanding restaurant management and um, and food classes and wines and you know. I was like from afar, so jealous. Yeah, it's funny. You were right there. You were right up against Cornell Hospitality School, uh-huh. which is one of the best, if not the best. Um, and so, like, it's interesting that you say that you were like in close proximity to those folks and overlapped with them in conversations because that ended up being you now run a hospitality <laughs> company. Yeah. Um, so while while it's not like a super linear path from biomedical engineering to Jose Andreas, it's actually not that crazy to think about because I've heard people describe Obui and and Jose Andreas restaurants as a laboratory, right? And yeah. everything is super precise. Yes. And it's obviously it's a you're being a chef and you're cooking, but it's so technical that it's almost like math and science more mm-hmm. like you're not cutting a piece of fish and then cooking a piece of fish right you're no. it's more manipulation yes. using a lot of different techniques right and so you're following very precise recipes with um weighing out every amount and you know it's about following a procedure like you would a lab procedure and i connected so well with that i mean that is my environment if somebody is like t- gives me 20 ingredients and then tells me just to create something out of it, you know, I get stressed. It's like not how I like to cook. I like to like test things and then write it down and figure out what the best preparation is and then be able to reproduce it exactly the same way every time. And that is a little different. You know, I think there are, um, uh, but I fit really well with that. Jose Andres and, and Ferran and El Bouyi's like mentality. So I did really well when I was working at El Bouyi, I think because of that, because I had had experience using scales and weighing things out precisely and working with liquid nitrogen. I mean, I did that during my master's degree, like the entire time. So I was the, the one who was like, oh, who needs gloves? It's fine. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like it was less of a foreign environment for you, even though you probably came in with less traditional culinary experience, right? Yeah. I mean, I, oh, I had like hardly any at all. I mean, I was definitely the least experienced person in that kitchen. <laughs> and besides your enthusiasm and your overachieving mentality, <laughs> how do you survive and define yourself in a space like that where I'm just guessing, were there a hundred people in the kitchen? 50. Were, okay, it's just, that's a huge brigade still. Mm-hmm. And if you come in and you're literally and mentally kind of at the bottom of that hierarchy, how do you 
differentiate yourself and make it so that after the first day or the first week, they say, we don't think this is the right fit. Do you right. just work your ass off or? you? Yeah, you work really hard. You know, I found, I learned really quickly that like it was the the, the people who succeeded were the ones who asked questions, and then when they were shown something, shown how to do something, that they did it exactly that same way. You know, like it's about asking questions and then not being, not having to be told twice, right? Like that's the that is the key and the goal. So um, I think I just because I honestly think because I had not a lot of experience at all that it helped me in that environment because everything was so different that if you did, you know, have a traditional culinary background, they might do it a totally different way. And it's like, it, it I don't know. I think, I think my lack of knowledge helped me. Um, and my ability to learn something pretty quickly and not have to be told twice. So, <laughs> And even before Abuya, you were walking around DC, just kind of like knocking on restaurant doors, saying, "Will anyone give me a shot?" And you actually you started off as front of house, I did. right? Yeah. And so you do you did have a little bit of experience on that side of the floor before you ended up back in the kitchen. Um, was there ever a day when you were waiting tables? Uh, it was at a Jose Andreas restaurant. Yes. Were, was yeah. there ever a day when you thought? what am I doing here? Or did it feel right from the start? It felt right from the start. I mean, I just, it was the environment of, it's that fast pace, like multitasking. I mean, it happens in the front of the house and in the back of the house. That, like you've got a million things in your head, checklists, you're running through them, you're taking care of the guests. It's like fast pace and crazy. And, and then, um, and I loved that. Um, and yeah, it was, it it was great. I was really fortunate that they gave me that job because everybody else in DC was like looking at this resume of like a PhD dropout and be like, this person has no idea what they're doing in life. Bye. You know, <laughs> they're going to last two months. Bye. Yeah. They're so, like, we don't want to be this confused person's right, two way month to stop gap. Totally. Yeah. While they figure out who they are. And, you know, it was, uh, but, you know, they, they knew that actually the key at the Jose Andres restaurant that they did was they handed everybody who walked in the door a test, a written test. And the written test, and I was pretty good at tests. Like at, You were uh, like, I'm home. I was like, I've been doing more tests, work. This is great. <laughs> doing tests for years. <laughs> Class work. So, totally. So they handed me a test. It was a food knowledge and service test, which was awesome because without having to interview me, they got to see that I was extremely passionate about food. I mean, I like aced the food knowledge questions of like name five varieties of mushrooms and like, you know, um, and I failed the service. Like what does 86 mean? But you know, whatever <laughs> they still, they saw the passion behind right. it. And, uh, um, yeah. The GM was like, some woman took this test it, her answers are nine pages long. It's right, exactly. the most detailed explanations totally. we've ever seen. Yes. We have to give her a shot. Yes. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking more about actually being on the line cooking and then how you ended up moving back to the South and opening your restaurants with your husband. Stay with us uh, here on the line on Heritage Radio. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, 
yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep-deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Chef Katie Button. She is the co-owner and executive chef of two restaurants in Asheville. And before the break, we were talking about how you made a life change. You were originally pursuing a PhD and you had... uh, decided that you thought that you wanted to be involved in some capacity in the culinary world and your entry point to doing that was uh, becoming front of house. And that position at a Jose Andreas restaurant actually led you to going to Spain. And while in Spain, you worked front of house and then you really kind of transitioned into a cook, right? So tell us a little bit about how did you make the decision to go to Spain of all places? And uh, you end up at basically the world's best restaurant. Take it from there. So that is intertwined in my love story with my husband. So, <laughs> so I'll throw that in there. So um, I met Felix and also some of the other chefs from El Bui when I was working at um, Cafe Atlantico mini bar for, for Jose. And um, they came in when El Bui was only open six months out of the year and then closed six months. So they would show up in the six months they were closed to learn English, like work in the kitchens and be in the U.S. for a little short period of time before going back. And um, that's where I met all the chefs from El Bui. And, and that was really the first time I'd ever heard of Ferran Adria or El Bui. I mean, I wasn't in the food world before that. And it was so fascinating to me, the science aspect of the food that they were doing. Um and then I fell in love with Felix, and Felix was like, you want to come to Spain with me and, like, work over there? And I was like, hmm, follow this handsome Spaniard to Spain, you know, work at the best restaurant in the world. Yes, I'm in. And so um, I just, like, leaped, and I, it, it, working in the front of the house at El Bui was super scary because I didn't know Spanish, and... Um, at the time, I was the only American server that they had ever had, and um, like non, you know, Spanish speaking, I think. Like, and um, I, I was just trying to like learn the language and do this service. It, it helped because I was able to take care of American guests, you know, and and um, speak English and help with translations and and things like that, which was great. But when I was there, I saw the precision of the food and. I just knew that I didn't want to be in the front of the house. I had to be cooking, and I wanted my hands in it. I wanted to learn, and that that experience is where I switched. And a lot of people, they see the action in the kitchen, and they think, 
that's where I want to be. That looks exciting. I want to try to make that transition. But less do it and even less are successful at it. Did the transition into the kitchen there, was it met with open arms by other cooks? And did you find that you took to it quickly or was it more challenging than you had anticipated? Well, you know, first, um, when I when I told them at Albuy I wanted to be in the kitchen, they were like, "You have got to go like work in a couple of restaurants and then, <laughs> and then like and then before you come and work in our kitchen, and then we'll talk about it." Um, but uh, you know, once I started working in kitchens, I and cooking, I realized I was really good at it. Like you know, just I learn. I I don't know. There's something about understanding, wanting to do it right, but also like grasping a recipe and how to make it really pretty quickly and be only having to be shown once. I mean, that was maybe my biggest strength was you would show me something once and no matter what it was, I could repeat it the same way every time. And I wasn't going to cut a corner and, um, I don't know. I loved it too. So that was helpful. (laughs) So at this point, you're really locked into uh, cooking and you're in Spain. When did you come back to the United States? And did your husband also come back to, to the, well, he wasn't your husband at that point, but did he come back to the United States with you? And where did you end up? Yeah. So Felix was um, still like working with Jose. And, and actually, when I came back from El Buñi after working in the front of the house, Felix went to go open the bazaar in Los Angeles with Jose. And um, and I ended up working at a restaurant in New York, doing a stage, and then, and then moving out to L.A. to work at the bazaar as well. Um, and then from there, I went back to El Bulli to work in the kitchen. Felix stayed in L.A. working at the bazaar because he had, you know, told Jose he would be there a full year. So um, it was interesting. So we were kind of in separate places while I was working there. And then after that, we moved to Asheville to work on opening our restaurant. I mean, I had, I mean, when we opened Curate, I mean, I think I had the least amount of experience. I mean, my experience was awesome. My cooking school, my culinary school was seven months at El Bouilly, you know, which was amazing. But at the same time, it's like, I, when I look back on it, if I was going to see myself again, I'd be like, you have no business like running, being the chef of a restaurant right now at this stage in your life. But, um, so after cooking for really only about seven months, you and Felix (laughs) decided to open up a restaurant. I mean, I, I had, it'd been, it was a year. Yeah. I'd been cooking for a year. Yeah. And you, embark on this new difficult journey and just to increase the challenge a little bit for yourself you decided to do it in a place where neither you or your husband were currently living and you settled on Asheville after doing some U.S. exploration right but you went back to the south where you were from where you had some family in close proximity for those people that have never been to Asheville, can you just discuss a little bit about its kind of blend of community and arts culture and and uh, what personally drew you and your husband to yeah. Asheville? So when we were looking for a place to open the restaurant, it was really about like, well, where do we want to live? You know, what what is that place look like? And we're, I was looking around the Northeast, but it just 
I don't, it's so ex, so expensive and just like challenging. And I, I don't know, there was nothing that was a great fit. And I wanted to move closer to my um, grandmother who is in South Carolina. And we kind of looked all over. And when we drove through Asheville, um, it was just like, oh my God, this is the place. Um, there's this vibrant downtown with these historic buildings tucked, nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains with beautiful rivers. There's people making craft beer and, you know, art and ceramics and glass blowing. And these, it, it was just this really, and amazing packed farmers markets. I mean, it was just like, the perfect community in my mind. And I was like, wow, we have to be here. Um, Felix wasn't with me on that exploration. I did it with my mother because we went in. The only reason we were able to open our business was because my mother, having had a catering company, it had always been her dream to own her own restaurant. And so when my father's career as a pilot was came to an end, they t- talked about it. They realized I had switched out of science into food. Now my husband is a front of house service master, my fiance at the time. We needed to make this all work. And um, so they moved down to Asheville and we all like worked on this business together. And the only reason I was able to open my own restaurant at that point in my life, you know, was because of them and their help. And my father taking this risk of his taking his retirement money, which honestly was maybe smarter because I don't think he had enough money to retire on and, um, and, and put it into the down payment of our building, you know, that we, um, then built out the Curate in. and, um, yeah. So everyone involved just put it all on the totally. line and yes. the risk <laughs> Is tremendous in yes. opening up any product, even oh if God. it's cheaper in Asheville. Everyone just said, no. "Katie, we believe in Equally you, right?" Risky. And <laughs> and everyone said that we're going to do this project together. Mm-hmm. You find the space, obviously. You secure the funding. You've got kind of the team. You are at that point uh, not the known entity that you are today. In order to attract talent, right. how did you, as a young chef? that didn't know the state that well, how did you attract people to come just even work? Did you just do an open casting call and say like, I need some cooks and some servers? Yeah, we did. We, uh, we, and we got a ton of applications. Like I think there were just a lot of people looking for jobs at that time. It was, um, you know, our timing, it was 2010. So, um, that we were setting this up, we opened in 2011. So it wasn't far after that, like the crash, the country was still feeling that like depression that happened in that time frame, And so we, we had a ton of applicants. Um, what was more challenging for me was having the little amount of experience that I did. I mean, we were just a family opening a tapas bar. Like that was it, right? Like nothing more than that. And, um, but it was challenging. I had a lot of really talented cooks and I, um, remember asking them a lot of questions because I did not know anything. I had been like a crash course of cooking for a little over a year. And, you know, I had to be open to asking them questions and ideas in order to create the restaurant that we did. Um, but I'm a fast study, so. <laughs> uh, and about a, it was a week or two before opening, you were really feeling the stress, right? And you made a pretty special phone call. Yes. It was really, I have to say, I mean, you know, I I think it's 
clear, obviously. Openings are hard. If you've never done one and you also haven't worked as a, you know, a chef in a restaurant before, um, uh, they're incredibly challenging. And a few days, it was just like, it was like a week before we were opening, Felix and I were talking, I had this panic attack that there was no way I was going to be able to train the staff, myself, alone, like all at the same time, you know, because I, I didn't even know exactly the best way to do it and to organize things. And so we called Jose Andres and, um, he immediately said yes. And he himself and three or four of his team members who are friends of ours, some of them I worked at El Bulli with, um, you know, flew down to Asheville, spent two two, maybe three days maximum with us over our opening, and it saved everything. It's really unreal. I mean, it's it's a I think that really is a testament to you and what you were able to accomplish working for him that he would want to then invest his time and his people back in you. He's a very giving person, but I don't think he flies down to every single (laughs) restaurant (laughs) opening all across the United States of his, uh, you know, his team. But uh, so he kind of imparts some last minute wisdom to you and your team and gets you pushing in the right direction. But then they leave oh, yeah. and then you're you're really you're back kind of on your own flying solo and I want to know as you look back you're you're coming up on it'll be almost 10 years pretty soon right mm-hmm. so you, as you're looking back to those first couple weeks and months did you make any mistakes that you look back on now and and think to yourself we just didn't know better and these are things that that we did or um did it end up being pretty smooth sailing in the those first couple months I mean Considering everything, it was pretty smooth sailing. I worked an incredible amount. I mean, um, that that is what you have to do. If you are opening your own restaurant, you have to be willing to get up at 7 in the morning to get into the restaurant, to do, work the whole day, come home. I was working from 7 to 2 in the morning. I mean, back to back, day after day. And... Um, uh, it was really hard. I mean, I, I was so busy that I wasn't eating a lot. I mean, I think, you know, I was like, um, I had lost like a lot of weight. I didn't even need to lose and, and, and sleep. And I, I mean, I was a mess, but I was doing it because we had to do it. And once we got past that and systems started getting set up, um, which is what Jose's team really helped us do. Honestly, they were there helping us develop systems, ordering guides, prep lists, like just like, let's get things in order. Because once you have the systems in place, that alleviates, reduces all the work. And that was the same thing I learned at El Bui, was like the importance of systems and setup and organization. And if you don't have checklists, that's where your like food cost goes out the window because I mean you you have to follow order guides and prep lists and you know you can't fly by the seat of your pants if you want to run a successful business. So fortunately with that experience, you know, Corte was um, financially successful immediately, which is almost unheard of. And I don't even know, you know, I don't even know what the magic, you know, equation was. People ask me that and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, approachable cuisine that 
people love, that they feel some sort of connection but to. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't El Bui food. The people of Asheville responded. Yes, they, they, they did. came and they came in droves yeah. and they continued to come. Yes. And and so while those systems and processes are so they lack creativity, the food was able to be the creative outlet and that was what they were coming for. But um not it seems like it was not without its pain and suffering those yeah. first couple months. Uh, I, I saw you say once that you should own what you don't know. And I just I really love that quote because many chefs, they create this sort of facade of invincibility. It's like you're at the top. And so you have to show that you have everything under control. But I wonder you, you've you've spoken that you foster an environment where people can ask questions and uh, not everyone like you picks it up the first time and can do right. it perfectly the, the, the second time. So I want to know, like, what advice do you have for cooks that are learning besides, you know, owning what you don't know and asking questions? Like, what is the next step beyond those two things? Well, it's, um, focus and, um, I mean, following the, procedures and recipes and protocols and how the chef of the restaurant that you're working at, like wants things done, you know, I mean, it's really, I think when you are a, um, a line cook, you're a chameleon, you know, you, depending on where you work, you have to adjust, you have to be flexible in the restaurant industry. I mean, it really requires a flexible person to deal with because con- things are constantly changing. And, um, I think that that is really important and that when you're not flexible, that, that that's where, you know, you hit that rub uh, sometimes in your career. So that would be my next advice, flexibility. We actually, we met in Charleston and uh, what has always, what I've been in awe of so much about uh, restaurant groups that are from the South, from Atlanta, from Charleston, from the Carolinas is that as hospitality groups, they're own they're really like a, an actual family. And I know that <laughs> restaurants say that over and over, like we're a family, our staff is family, but it's just crazy. The sort of loyalty that people give to their restaurant groups that you just, you don't see that in New York. I think people work very hard in New York and I think there are places that are familiar in nature, but Besides that Southern hospitality, how do you create that family environment in your own group? You you have people that have worked for you for forever. Yes. And yeah. they don't leave. No. And so you do all these things uh, with living wage, but it goes beyond that. And what are those special pieces that, that have made you and your husband successful? Well, I think when you find an employee who fits in the culture and the environment and gets it and, and is happy and enjoying working, like finding a way to get them to that next step in their career with you. Because once, once you get them into management, um, whether that's a sous chef position or, you know, a higher management position, that's when they stay. That's when they start, that's when they really understand. They start to now at this point that Felix and I now have multiple places. So we're not there all the time. Like once they move into that management, that's when they get that connection with us and our family. And they really understand who we are and why and, and what we do for our staff and what we're trying to create. And as soon as that happens, that's when they stay, you know? And, um, 
we have our, so my chef de cuisine, uh, who's been with us since we, before we opened Curate and our general manager, I mean, they were, my chef de cuisine was a line cook when I hired him and for, and that was his first position for us. And then our general manager was a bartender and, um, it's been really neat in Asheville to be able to have our staff like move up into positions that now are running the restaurant when we're not there. And it's, it's great. And one of the best ways to retain staff is to open things and give them the yes. opportunity to uh, expand their professional capabilities and oversee new projects and help you open new things. And you you just pretty recently opened a new spot, um, Button and Co. Bagels. And I want to talk about that, but I first want to talk about something which is so difficult, which is closing a spot. Mm -hmm. And you had a place um, <clears throat> that was open for five years and is called Night Bell. And you made the tough decision in 2019 to close it. And, and that's incredibly that might be the hardest decision that anyone can ever make yeah, in their, really in their lives. Um, there was actually just this really good piece on eater, uh, written by, um, an owner in Seattle. And she said, it will feel horrible, but you will live when yes. she talked about closing her place. I want to hear about your, uh, emotions and your, uh, business decisions that went into that process. It was, you know, I mean, I think anybody who closes a place feels that it was a long time coming, you know, like, um, I mean, honestly, I think the writing was on the wall from when we opened and, uh, even though, but you know, um, we're so stubborn that it took us five years to do it, <laughs> but, but, you know, because you want to like at least put as much as you can into it and try to make it happen. And you know, when we opened Nightbell the, from the gate, what we wanted to do and how it translated, it just, we started as a bar. It started out as a bar, you know, with bar food and like elevated bar food. And I was doing more techniques, like things that we, I had learned from El Bouilly and like these really interesting bar snacks. It was this late night spot, but the labor and the amount of people coming in just didn't make sense. Right. And the, and the sales of liquor versus that. And we re and I also realized that dealing with being a bar and dealing with drunk people is like a whole nother thing and like not something that I really want to do. <laughs> so, so we switched it into a full service restaurant, you know, and, um, started serving food. But honestly, you know what the problem was? We never had a very clear, precise, wrapped in a bow concept like Curate or the bagel shop. Like if you go to Curate, you know, from the moment that you walk in the door, this is a Spanish tapas bar, you know, from the decor on the walls, from the menu, from the design, the wine list is 100% from Spain. We don't have anything from any other country. And like you're, you walk into Curate, you're like immersed in Spanish culture. And, um, and the menu and the food, it's like all fits that. I don't do fusion food there. It's not this like mix of, other cultures and things. I mean, I bring my, my touch or ideas or my team's ideas like into that menu, but it's, it has to be rooted in traditional Spanish food. And at Night Bell, it was like, it was like creating in a blank box, you know? And I think that that's really hard. And I think it's hard for guests to think, oh, they would come for special occasions. They loved it. The town and community were really sad when we closed. You know, and I was like, well, I know, but 
you're only here Friday and Saturday, you know? We got, <laughs> there's, you know, five other days of the week, you know? <laughs> so it, uh, it was it was very challenging to make that decision, but honestly, once we did, it was the right one for that space. Also, the space that we designed, I mean, it was just the amount of mistakes that we made there. It was like, because it was a bar, we put it off the main floor, because like the idea was it was going to be this like little tucked away hidden space. But then when we turned it into a restaurant, nobody could see it from the street, and it was on an off street, and like, you know, just... I don't know. It was this idea, oh, well, if you build it, the people will come. And, you know, well, not always. <laughs> not not always. Yeah, it doesn't always work 100% of the time. But you do have another spot, and it's exciting and so different from Curate. <laughs> and it is, uh, you know, a bagel and a sandwich shop, but you're using local milled flours and you've got locally made cream cheese, you've got great dairy and produce nearby. So talk a little bit about that project and how it maybe isn't just what people think, which is, okay, you opened up a bagel shop. Well, so I opened up the bagel shop extremely selfishly because growing up in New Jersey and then moving to the Southeast, I was like surrounded by biscuits and then also donuts because donuts are a craze everywhere. But there were no good bagels. And like for 10 years, I've been there like suffering every morning without being able to find a good bagel. And I just, we want, when we talked about wanting to run a counter service, like breakfast, lunch spot, I immediately thought, oh my God, we should do a bagel shop because then we get to create the whole thing. Like I'm not going to buy somebody else's bread and slice it and make sandwiches. Like I want to do the whole thing, start to finish. So um, and bagels is something I'm missing, but we didn't want to just bring like New York and throw it in Asheville. I felt it was really important to weave a sense of place into our bagel shop if we're going to open a bagel shop in Asheville, North Carolina. So we used, um, we combined some locally milled flour, which, um, that winter wheat that grows so well in the South is not high in gluten, which is why it is not bagel sourdough bread, like country, you know, in the South and why it's better biscuit country. I mean, it's interesting when you realize, when you start learning about that, we blended it with like a high gluten flour. And then instead of using barley malt syrup, like you would in New York or honey, like you would in Montreal, we use uh, sorghum syrup because that's related to the history of our region and the storytelling of, you know, how a cheaper sweetener than sugar was produced. And um, so that goes in the boil and in the bagel itself. And then when we were doing our cream cheeses, it was ramp season shortly after. So we made ramp cream cheese. Then we pickled the bulbs of ramps and like ramps grow all over Western North Carolina. I mean, that's one of our amazing uh, springtime um things. And then we made our smoked cod and rubbed it in sumac, which grows wild in the Appalachian area. So it was just, it was about putting these, um, making our own jams and things with berry, local berries and things. It was about putting these aspects of Appalachian food and culture of Western North Carolina and blending it in this uh, sandwich shop. We have a pimento cheese bagel. It's delicious. So, <laughs> and now, so you have two spots and you're, you're up here in New York and you're doing uh, a residency at Chef's Club. Yes. And uh, I assume that you're doing things that are more along the lines of curate. You're doing some Spanish items on the menu. And uh, what are the dates of that so that people know that if they're in New York and New Jersey, then they're listening, they can 
come find you. They don't have to travel to Asheville, although they should. Um, yes. So talk a little bit about this Chef's Club pop-up. So we have brought Kurite into the Chef's Club space um, on Mulberry Street, and it's been awesome. <coughs> We've been there since <coughs> December 3rd, and we'll be there till February 1st. Um, and basically, we, we brought up like local ingredients and some products and things that we use from Asheville and art and put it on the wall and kind of like change the space to feel like Curate in Asheville. So it's really your only opportunity if you're in New York and don't want to take a flight to Asheville to get to come see us and eat the food and enjoy. And we have a couple cool things going on besides regular service every night. Um, I'm doing some cooking demonstrations from my book um, once a week in the last three weeks that we're here. And then also on February 1st, we're um, collaborating with East Fork Pottery and selling the pottery that they so kindly let me use. They're a pottery company from Asheville that they sent me all their plates for the Chef's Club um, residency. And we're going to sell the plates and do a brunch on February 1st. So I'm excited about that. As you look forward to the next five or 10 years of business with your husband and the spots that you have and your restaurant life in Asheville, do you and Felix, do you have a plan that you have laid out for either growth or sustaining the existing spots or do you not plan that far ahead? Well, you know, our next step this year is we're opening, um, we're the, the space that used to hold our restaurant night bell is actually right above our bagel shop. And we're turning that into an event venue, um, so that we can do fun, creative, you know, curated type events as well as sell the space for an event space. So we're doing that. And then honestly, this time period at the chef's club is really helping, focus, like, what do we want to do? What's our next thing? And so when we go back to Asheville, um, we're kind of returning with renewed energy to perfect what we have created in Asheville and Curate, but then also have the conversations about what's next. I don't know exactly right now what's next, but we've got lots of possibilities, which is why that that's so fortunate, but challenging to decide which way to go. So I don't know. Chef, thanks so much for being here and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you. They can find information about the restaurants in Asheville by going to... katiebuttonrestaurants.com. Great. And if they want to find information on tickets for Chef Club and get uh, get information for that, what's the website for it's, Chef Club? Um, I think it's chefsclub.com or chefsclubnewyork.com, NY. Cool. Um, and it's on Resi as well. Great. And so that's how you can taste curate if you are up in this part of the United States and if you're in the south head on over to Asheville to go check out the spots that she's got down there uh, we appreciate you being here best of luck at the chef's club and of course with any future endeavors down in Asheville thank you so much thanks everybody for listening to this episode as I said at the top of the show you can find all our episodes on heritage radio network org or wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday for a brand new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.